In 2016, I preached a number of sermons on the topic of biblical manhood and womanhood, and a big part of that sermon series was spent considering texts related to wise biblical parenting. The thing is, at the time, there were no members at New City who had small children, and only two couples with adult children. So a great deal of what I was preaching at that point was anticipatory. It was theoretical. We were looking ahead as a church. We were sort of preparing the groundwork. But by God's grace, things have changed at New City Baptist. There's been a a demographic shift. Most of the members of New City are married with children. And so as a church, on this matter of parental discipline, we need to move from theory to practice. Because now, in 2022, New City parents have spent time in the trenches with their kids. You guys bear the scars. (laughs) And the doctrine of original sin is believed by all. And so Pastor Alex and I thought it wise to revisit this text, and not just for the benefit of parents, but for the singles too, and for married couples without children. We're a church family, New City. So this is a topic that needs to be part of our discipling relationship. Singles, married, grandparents. We need to be talking about parenting with each other. We need to ask questions and support each other. We need to be holding each other to account. Mom, Dad, a single member of this church is welcome to ask you questions and to maybe look into your life and say, why are you doing it that way? Welcome that. And your pastors want to guide you in this. We want to equip you, singles and marrieds alike. Now, discipline, of course, is an essential component of biblical parenting. And God's people want to know what our Heavenly Father has told us about this topic in his word. The Bible speaks to this subject, and we want to obey God for his glory, for our good, and for the good of our children. So we're going to begin today by looking at one of the foundational passages related to discipline in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 to 11. Now, I preached this passage only last week, but I preached it contextually, which is a good thing. (laughs) That's what you want preachers to do. So if you were here, you know the primary purpose of Hebrews 12 is not related to parental discipline. This text is addressing Christians who are suffering, who are tempted to throw in the towel. Uh, The burden of a great deal of the letter to the Hebrews is that it's dangerously, dangerously possible to start the marathon of faith well, to make a fine show of the Christian life and strength at the beginning of the race, but only faith which perseveres to the very end is genuine. And as paradoxical as it sounds, God lovingly, disciplines his children, which includes suffering and hardship, in order that we persevere in the faith and share in his holiness. But even though Hebrews 12 isn't primarily about human parenting, there are principles, and I've listed them in your bulletin as seven propositions. There are principles, propositions, which are useful in helping us think through our own parental discipline. We're not going to read through the text again. Alex just did that. But I want you to note the repetition of the word discipline in verses 4 through 12. Just cast your eyes down the page 
It occurs at least once in every verse except verse 4. So, what does this passage teach us? Proposition 1, God disciplines his children. Hebrews chapter 12 distinguishes two categories of people, those who are God's children and those who are not God's children. God's children are his people, believers, born-again Christians, those who by God's grace have repented of their sin and believed in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And the text says, the text explicitly asserts, God disciplines his children. Look at verse 5. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Verse 7, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. Verse 10, God disciplines us. But what does discipline mean? Because sometimes we use the term punishment synonymously with discipline, don't we? Uh, but it's important to distinguish those two concepts since there's a, there's a, there can be overlap based on how people are using them. Discipline, now hear this, discipline is corrective. Discipline seeks to accomplish change in the one being disciplined. Just look at our sermon title. Parental discipline, training our children for their good. So, in bringing up children, Christian parents should be disciplining them. Punishment, punishment is meted out in the simple interests of justice. In hanging a murderer, say, the civil magistrate is not disciplining that person. He is punishing them. God disciplines his children. But which children? Look at proposition number two. God disciplines all his children. Verse 6, he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Verse 8, everyone undergoes discipline. And that's linked with proposition number 3. God disciplines only his children. Verse 6, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Verse 7, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. Verse 8, If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Or as we saw last week, the King James Version, then are ye bastards and not sons. This means God's discipline demonstrates that he loves us. His his discipline demonstrates that we are his children. It's evidence. But if we're not disciplined, then we're not God's legitimate children. That's the flow of the text. So, discipline isn't bad. Discipline is good. It's a bad sign if discipline is absent. It means love is absent. And that's not a contradiction. God's discipline displays his love. God disciplines his children because he loves us. But what's the point of the Heavenly Father's discipline. Look at proposition number four. Discipline is training. God disciplines his children for their good. Verse 10, God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. That's a, that's a great verse just to underline. What an amazing thing. 
God disciplines us for our good that we might share in God's holiness. Verse 11, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful, painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. That means discipline isn't an end in itself. Brothers and sisters, discipline trains us for righteousness. It trains us for a specific end, for our good, in order that we might share in God's holiness. Which means God's discipline is not a sadistic punishment. It's never cruel. It's never gratuitous, unjust, or unfair, ever. No matter what happens in our life, beloved, no matter what suffering and trials God providentially steers our way, God is not lashing out in unrighteous anger, frustration, or revenge. And so we need to be responding then to our Heavenly Father's discipline appropriately. God disciplines us with a long-term view for our well-being. Discipline is training. It means for us it's a means for us to become holy and righteous and peaceful, which is important to remember because it's easy to forget all that when we're actually experiencing it. What does discipline actually feel like? Does it feel pleasant? Does it feel nice? Proposition number five, discipline seems unpleasant and painful. Verse 11, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. So if it doesn't seem unpleasant, it's not discipline. If it doesn't seem painful, it's not discipline. Though I should probably say, if it doesn't seem unpleasant and painful, then it's not this kind of discipline. The Hebrew and Greek words for discipline has a range of meaning. Uh, sometimes it refers to teaching, exhorting, or warning, and not necessarily to physical discipline or chastening. Teaching, exhorting, and warning are not always unpleasant, though they can be. Nor are they always painful, though they can be. But since verse 11 says that discipline always seems unpleasant and painful, it must be referring especially to corrective discipline, the kind that is unpleasant and painful. Now, in the context of human parents and their children, what kind of discipline always seems unpleasant and painful? Physical discipline stands out most obviously. Here is what I'm getting at, New City. This text in Hebrews 12 compares how God disciplines his children to how parents physically discipline their children. Look at the second half of verse 6. It says that God chastens everyone he accepts as his son. And the verb chasten has two basic meanings. This is coming from... Uh, that lexicon I keep quoting, BDEG, is the best Greek lexicon money can buy, to beat with a, a whip or a lash, or secondly, to punish with discipline in mind, punish, chastise. It's the same word the four Gospels use to describe the Romans' flogging of Jesus prior to his crucifixion, to beat with a whip or a lash. And in this text, God chastens his children. 
God chastises his children with discipline, discipline that always seems unpleasant and painful. Experiencing our Heavenly Father's discipline is not like opening up birthday presents and eating ice cream. Right? We don't have to endure that. But what does Proposition 6 say? God's children should endure God's discipline. Verse 8, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Uh, Verse 7, endure hardship as discipline. Verse 9, moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? Now, what do these first six propositions have to do with human parents and their children? Number seven, God's disciplining his children compares, it compares to human parents disciplining their children. Look at verse five. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? Verse 7, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? Verse 9, moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. Verse 10, they disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. Okay, let's slow right down. This passage assumes that parents who love their children discipline their children, correct? Yes. God himself disciplines his children. So you, disciplining your children, Christian, is godly. It's good. It's right to discipline your children. But these seven propositions, especially the last one, raise an important question. What does exactly it look like when parents discipline their child? Well, verses 5 to 6 quote Proverbs chapter 3, 11 to 12. So this passage then in Hebrews 12 directly connects us to the book of Proverbs. The author of Hebrews assumes that the principles of Proverbs still apply to Christians. He assumes Proverbs are good wisdom for God's people today. That's why he quotes the text. So let's trace this thread back to Proverbs to see what that book teaches about training our children for their good. And I'm stealing here from Paul Wegner, who is professor of Old Testament at Phoenix Seminary. Wegner has systematized what the book of Proverbs teaches about parental discipline. And he argues that there are four levels of discipline in the book of Proverbs. Three levels for parents and one for government. For the parents, it's teach, warn, enforce. Level four is beyond the parent's jurisdiction. And Wegner argues, and I would say he convincingly argues, that we should spend most of our time as parents in level one, teach. Less time in level two, warn. And as little as possible in level three, enforce. And the severity increases from teaching to warning to enforcing. For example, here's how things might play out if you're in the grocery store parking lot with your three-year-old. You may teach your child, level one, by saying, 
please hold Daddy's hand while we walk into the store. This is a parking lot with lots of moving cars. I want you to stay safe. Teach. And if you feel their little hand tugging out of yours, you may warn your child, level two, by saying, do you see that car? You could get badly hurt if you don't hold on to my hand. Please hold my hand. Or if you choose to disobey, fill in the blank. Warn. And if your child pulls their hand out of yours and darts through the parking lot, you may enforce your guideline, level three, by saying, you did not obey daddy. You pulled your hand out of mine and ran in the parking lot. So since you chose to disobey, fill in the blank. Enforce. Teach, warn, enforce. And as time goes by, there will be more and more teaching and less enforcing. God willing. <laughs> but, but, the early years sometimes require a shorter distance from level one to three. From teaching to enforcing, often getting to level three regularly. Regularly. Now, one of the ways for this to all fall off the rails is for the parents to get stuck in one level. For example, they teach and teach and teach but never escalate to warning or enforcing. Every act of disobedience is a teaching opportunity. There is no parental escalation to warning because there's no painful parental enforcement for behavior to warn the child about. It's just more teaching, even, even guys, theological teaching and appeals to the gospel if the parents are Christians. Painful, unpleasant discipline is not part of their parenting philosophy. It's part of God's, but it's not theirs. Another way that parents can sin is they can tend to warn, 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 but rarely enforce. Parents can, I mean, obviously parents can just ignore bad and obnoxious behavior in their kids and not teach anything, not warn at all, nor discipline, but we'll come to that later. But one of the ways that parents can sin is they warn and warn and warn and rarely enforce. They may repeatedly say, if you do that again, then you will be disciplined, but they never follow through. And that trains kids. It trains them to see that a parent's warnings are just vain threats with no real sting. We need wisdom. Wisdom. Level one, teach. Proverbs chapter one, verses eight to nine. Listen, my son, to your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching. They're a garland to grace your head and a chain to adorn your neck. Parents, that's talking about you. Right? You must clearly explain to your children what you expect from them so that they understand you. This takes so many forms, and it happens in every venue of life as parents spend time with their children. But think of, uh, perhaps most famously, Deuteronomy 6, 6 and following. 
These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. So, mom, dad, what should you do when you're with your children? You should talk about the gospel and how it applies to all areas of life because it really does. Uh, You should teach values by modeling for your children what you expect from them. You should state rules to your children. You should explain those rules. You should encourage and affirm your children. You should explain improper behavior in neutral context, not just when they're in trouble. And you should connect sin with its consequences so that children see sin's long-term effects. This is all teaching, and it's going on all the time. All the time. Level two is important as well, but we should spend less time here. Warning. Warning can save a person from danger. Proverbs 2, 12, and 16. Wisdom will save you from the ways of wicked men. Wisdom will save you also from the adulterous woman. So do you see God is patient with us? And we should be patient and kind with our children. But we need God's wisdom to know when to warn instead of enforce. Or when to warn and then enforce. But when we warn... We clearly tell our children what will happen if they do not heed our warning. We need to warn about both the short-term and long-term consequences. Short-term consequences include how we will enforce our guidelines if they break them. Or that they might break their leg if they play on the roof and fall off. And you are loving your child by warning them about the danger. Level three, enforce. Now, what's at work in the background here is that wise parents are concerned primarily about their children's heart, not not merely their external obedience. Proverbs 4.23, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. We don't want children who are merely externally compliant, right? Like good Pharisees. We want to give it their heart, right? Uh, But external disobedience evidences heart problems. Now, your child can have all sorts of heart issues and still be an externally obedient child. Let's not be foolish. But external disobedience evidences one of the myriad of heart problems plaguing our fallen children. And external disobedience is an opportunity then to deal with heart issues. So, when our children disobey us, parents need God's wisdom regarding how to enforce the guidelines. But what does enforcing look like? It may involve verbally rebuking our children. It may be a timeout or revoking privileges from our child. My mother was an expert at that last one, revoking privileges. She hit us where we lived. <laughs> no dessert for a week. Because oh! <laughs> we had dessert every day. 
No Nintendo. <laughs> and sometimes, depending on their age, physical discipline, i.e. spanking. The main idea here in Proverbs, especially in, in the four passages that mention the rod, which we'll come to in a moment, is that temporary discipline is better than allowing wickedness and evil to run wild, right? which leads then to serious punishment. And here's where we enter the realm of controversy because an increasing number of Christians reject physical discipline or spanking as one of the means of disciplining children. Some argue very passionately that it's wrong for a parent ever, ever to spank their child. But what those people need to do is honestly deal with the rod passages in Proverbs. Most Old Testament scholars agree that the four passages in Proverbs that mention the rod include physical discipline. Um, It's talking about a wooden stick of some sort. Wagner, for example, says that the rod, quote, undoubtedly suggests some type of corporal punishment, end quote. Now, the rod may refer to multiple levels of discipline. It's a metaphor, but it certainly includes physical discipline, the kind that Hebrews 12.11 says seems unpleasant and painful. So it's wrong to argue that the rod passages in Proverbs excludes physical discipline. So let's look now at the four passages in the book of Proverbs that mention the rod. There are only four. The first one, you can see these listed in your bulletin, though, but the first one is Proverbs 13.24. Proverbs 13.24. Whoever, you hear this often, spare the rod, spoil the child. That's not what it says. Whoever spares the rod hates their children. But the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. I, this, is, this is extemporaneous, but just like yesterday, I just had me watching on YouTube. There's a channel called Soft White Underbelly. It's pretty harrowing stuff. It's a, it, a guy videoing people on Skid Row in California. And... Uh, just a whole different walk of life. And you just, it's really, it's, it's excellent stuff, I think. But I watched a guy just yesterday just saying about how he was never disciplined. He's like a 35-year-old man. And he was breaking down and he was crying. And he actually, he looked at all the problems in his life basically from that, that angle, whereas actually there was no discipline in my home. And I ran riot and he was weeping. And, and he actually, he then needed a lot of structure around him from, from military boot camp, stuff like that, and that's how he felt love. So, I mean, there's a lot of issues there, problems, but it's just, I don't know, that's just for free, I guess, but it's just, it really struck me as I was preparing this sermon. Whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. Parents who love their children discipline them using the rod. As one pastor wisely observes, in order to have a garden full of weeds, it's not necessary to do anything. One must just let it go. And in order to have a home full of grief, it's not necessary to do anything either. Whoever spares the rod hates their children. That doesn't mean the parent is filled with emotional revulsion for their children. It means that the lack of discipline has a destructive impact on the future course of their children's lives. And they're seeing that future and just saying, Psh. 
And most children need physical discipline at some point, but that doesn't mean all children do. Let me be clear. Parents who have an unusually gentle and conscientious child, a child who responds well to non-physical discipline, shouldn't feel guilty for not spanking them. It's feasible that there are some children who never or extremely rarely require any physical discipline because they're so externally compliant. They do what you tell them the first time. Whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. The point being that properly administered discipline demonstrates love. Christian, we need to believe that. Broad passage number two, Proverbs twenty-two fifteen. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far away. And Bruce Waltke, an Old Testament scholar who has authored perhaps the best commentary available on Proverbs, notes that this proverb makes the assumption that, now hear this, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, and it will take more than just words to dislodge it. Folly is bound up in the heart of the child, and it will take more than just words to dislodge it. So, the rod is a means to remove folly, to remove foolishness from our children. Brothers and sisters, our children are sinfully depraved. Amen? So we shouldn't be surprised when they're bent on having their own way, right? We, we see this very clearly in ourselves. They take after mom, they take after dad. So why should we be surprised when we see it in our kids? And painful, unpleasant methods of discipline are a God-ordained means to train children for their good. Broad passage number three, Proverbs 23, 13 to 14. Just very quickly, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you punish them with the rod, they will not die. Punish them with the rod and save them from death. So the rod is a means of saving children from death. Discipline is not cruel, but to withhold discipline is cruel. Finally, rod passage number four, Proverbs twenty-nine, fifteen. A rod and a reprimand impart wisdom, but a child left undisciplined disgraces its mother. The rod is a means for parents to impart wisdom to their children and to avoid disgrace. All this to say, the rod has all sorts of benefits, and the rod includes physical discipline. Now, understandably, all sorts of questions arise regarding mechanics. For example... How old should the child be when we start spanking? And how old should it be when we stop spanking? Should we use our hand or an object like a wooden spoon? How many swats should we administer to the bottom and for what offenses? How frequently should this occur? I'm not going there. (laughs) The Bible doesn't answer those questions. So we must ask God for wisdom that we can apply to our individual context. There's that word again. Wisdom, mom, dad. There's not one right method. 
The Bible doesn't prescribe one. These statements in Proverbs don't fully explain exactly how parents should discipline their children. The Proverbs are pithy statements making a general point. So ask around. Uh, Get advice from other parents who have kids you like being around, who are well-behaved. Talk to parents with adult children who turned out well. Get counsel. Use prudence. Use discernment. Read some books. Read some blogs. All right, moving right along. Let's look now at 10 specific applications regarding discipline. I've listed them in the handout. And I need to say the rest of my sermon isn't tethered to any biblical texts. Uh, Here I'm stepping back and offering wise suggestions. I only preach on this topic once in a blue moon, right? So we're going to just give you the kitchen sink today. Application one, parents, pray for your children. You cannot change the heart of your child. You cannot convert your children. Only God can. Discipline can only do so much. It can't give your children a new heart. So Beg God to give your children new hearts. The goal of disciplining your children is not merely that they externally obey you. It's that God changes their heart so that they love God with their whole being and apply the gospel to every area of their life. You can't legislate that, mom. You can't enforce that, dad. You can't save your children from their sins, but you can pray for them. Application two, evangelize your children constantly in all aspects of life, including when you discipline them. Really, all three levels of discipline can be remarkably uh, teachable moments to discuss why God hates sin, how sin results in terrible consequences both in this life and in the next, and how Jesus solves the problem of sin. So, mom, dad, sit your child on your lap. Uh, sometimes in a disciplined context, sometimes in a neutral context, and talk about that. Teach them. And some of the most teachable moments will be when you transparently share with your children that you're a sinner too. And when you sin against your children, which you will, ask them to forgive you. This is one of the clearest memories I have as a child. My mom did this all the time. All the time, coming and saying, John, I'm sorry, I I lost my temper, I disciplined in anger, I said this thing, please forgive me. I heard that dozens and dozens and dozens of times through growing up. I know some of you have never heard it once. Communicate to your children that you can't obey without God's help either. That we're all sinful people and we all need Jesus to save us from our sins. Application three, use multiple levels of discipline. Spend as much of your disciplinary time as possible in levels one and two, right? So teaching and warning. And as little as possible in level number three. Though when you're in the early years, going from one to three happens regularly. Uh, Wagner puts it like this. The person who has wisdom will understand the principle of using the proper amount of discipline to curb improper behavior. There are various levels of severity, and the wise parent uses only the level of discipline necessary to curb the incorrect behavior. Application four, love your children and tell them and show them that you love them. Proper discipline 
is evidence that you love your children. Never discipline in unrighteous anger. That's not loving. Do not provoke your children to anger, Ephesians 6, 4. That's the translation in the NASB, the ESV, the Net Bible, and the NLT. In the NIV, it translates that do not exasperate your children. So do not provoke your children to anger. Do not exasperate your children because that's not loving. Your children can do things that will frustrate and anger you, mom, dad. You can expect that. But there should be nothing they can do that will ever make you stop loving them. Make sure your kids know that. We've given out something called the Jesus Storybook Bible uh, to the New City Kids Camp children and the PCC moms at Christmas. And that book refers often to God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreakable, always and forever love. Love your children in the same way, parents. Never stopping, never giving up, unbreakable, always and forever love. Application five, beware of two extremes, not disciplining, over-disciplining. There are at least two drop-offs on the path of biblical godly discipline. They are two extremes of disobeying, not disciplining our children at all, and over-disciplining them in a harsh, abusive, loveless, authoritarian manner. Both are serious errors, and we shouldn't gloss over either. There are a lot of ways to sin, and we don't want to assume that, that we're okay simply because we're not guilty of a particular sin. Christian parent, you may not be guilty of not disciplining, but do you over-discipline? You may not be guilty of over-disciplining, but do you discipline at all? Let me talk about the latter just for a moment, not disciplining. You see, if I'm being honest, what concerns me most is not children who are misbehaving, running amok, and being irritating due to a lack of parental discipline, but the foolishness and sadness that result from it. Sadness that goes far beyond childhood in the teen years. There's a trajectory here. A child who does not obey their parents will not obey their teachers. Why would they? And, when they? and then they don't obey their coaches. And then they won't obey their employers, their civil authorities, their spiritual leaders. And ultimately, they will not obey God. Who are you that I should obey your rules? Right? But it starts with the parents. Now, I know full well that we live in a society where if you really want to offend parents, just tell them their kids are misbehaviors or rude or obnoxious or uncontrollable. Make an offhand comment about a child's lack of discipline or the obvious lack of parental authority in the home and just see what goes down. I was at a dinner party once where that happened. (laughs) What's the watchword of our Canadian culture? When it comes to my kids, you mind your own business. You take care of your kids, I'll take care of mine. Mom, Dad, when should discipline of a child take place? Parent, you need to make a request or give a command just one time in a conversational tone 
And you only have to say it once because you have authority. God has placed you in that position over that child. And to relinquish that authority is sinful. And it's hurtful to the child. Don't touch that, please. Please don't eat that. Don't do that. Please don't say that. Please do this, that, or the other thing. But if the child then declines, resists, delays, disobeys, or demonstrates any sort of bad attitude, rolling their eyes, <sighs> sighing demonstrably, then follow through on discipline, whatever is appropriate in that context. But if it's a spanking that's called for, then take them to a private place. Don't spank them in front of other children or in a public place. Talk to them. Make sure they know the reason why they're being spanked. What did I ask you to do? And how did you respond? Okay, then because I love you and because God has put me in charge of you, you're going to be spanked now. Then spank them and then pray with them. Kiss them and hug them and tell them that you love them and that you will never spank them again if they simply obey you. And let me add a very important clarification to point number five here, application five. I've talked to many parents about discipline in all sorts of different contexts, not just New City, and I've noticed something. When I lay out more or less what I've just said in this sermon about discipline and spanking, oftentimes, oftentimes, the parent will respond, oh yeah, we go there, we will spank, we have spanked. Spanking is one method we use in a whole repertoire of disciplinary actions as parents. And on the surface, that sounds pretty good, right? Uh, that sounds biblically faithful and wise. But when I dig a bit deeper, I realize the discipline that's done, even the spanking that's done, is occurring in a different context than I've laid out in this sermon. I'm talking about a consistent, daily, hour-by-hour hour environment of parental teaching, warning, and enforcing. A context where the parent makes a request, gives a command, just one time in a conversational tone, and the child's obedience is the expectation. And if the child resists, declines, delays, disobeys, or demonstrates any sort of bad attitude, then there is follow-through on discipline, whatever is appropriate in that context. Please understand me. I'm not saying spanking is a behavioral panacea, a cure-all. I'm not saying the Bible says your child's obedience issues are solved if you spank. Nor am I saying that you are, by default, a good disciplinarian Christian because you spank your child. Parent, if you're satisfied with 30% compliance from your child, or 60% compliance or if you consistently let things slide off a cliff because you only have a few hours playtime with your child after work and it's soon time for bed, then all bets are off. Spanking, in that sort of context, any sort of inconsistent disciplinary action, no matter how enlightened the approach, isn't going to work. You aren't going to see biblical results. 
A child's discipline needs to be occurring in a context of wise consistency with the proper balance of parental love, encouragement, and biblical teaching. Disciplining your children consistently is a lot like going to the gym consistently. Going to the gym on New Year's Day and then for a week in April and then two days in May won't do a thing for your body. I speak from experience. Uh, And inconsistent discipline will only teach your child to play Russian roulette. It teaches them to gamble on if you're really going to follow through this time or not. Application six. Fathers, take the lead in discipline. Hebrews 12 talks specifically about human fathers disciplining their children. Ephesians 6.4 directly addresses fathers. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Fathers, you are responsible for your home. How your children are disciplined is your responsibility. In God's eyes, the buck stops with you. So lovingly lead your family by taking the lead in discipline. That doesn't mean mom never disciplines the children. It means the father does not passively sit by while leaving the burden of discipline exclusively or primarily to his wife. Don't leave the hard stuff to mom. Support your wife, brother. Your children must know that you are a unified team. And let me just throw one more grenade into the New City audience. Brother, if... brother. If your mother or your mother-in-law comes to visit for three months from Latin America, it's your responsibility to see that she does not sabotage or undermine the regimen of discipline that's been set in place through her grandmotherly indulgence. It happens. Fathers, you are responsible for your home. Application number seven, learn how to discipline each of your children most effectively. Every child is different, so don't rigidly, inflexibly, and thoughtlessly apply the exact same methods to all your children. A stern word and hardly any physical discipline may be sufficient for one child, but not with the other. Some kids only need a a stare, right, to melt their hearts. So, you need God's wisdom to discipline each of your children most effectively. Pray for that wisdom. That word just keeps coming up in parenting again and again. Wisdom, wisdom. Application 8. Distinguish between family rules and the Bible. It's important in the discipline process to communicate biblical principles. Now, that's not hard to do for sins like direct disobedience or lying. But especially as our children grow older... It's important to distinguish between family rules and the Bible. There is a difference, for example, between make your bed in the morning and speak truthfully. The Bible does not command us to make our bed in the morning. (laughs) It does command us to speak truthfully and not to lie. Uh, So... I'm not sure if he's here today, but David, when your mom asks you to make your bed in the morning, the biblical principle is not 
I must make my bed in the morning because God says to make my bed in the morning, but rather I must make my bed in the morning because my mom is asking me to make my bed in the morning and I must obey my mom when what she commands does not contradict the Bible. Mom and dad, if you don't distinguish family rules from Bible, then your children may think all of your rules belong in the same category. That may clutter their conscience with taboos and make it difficult for them to process why other Christian families follow some different rules and tempt them to reject all rules later in life instead of simply adjusting some of the family rules. So make that distinction. Bible rules, family rules. Application nine. Be humble about parental discipline. Don't be proud and judgmental. Easier said than done, I know, but this is essential. You need God's grace, parent, and God gives grace to the humble. It's so easy to be judgmental towards other parents regarding how they train or don't train their children, especially before you have children, especially if you have comparatively well-behaved children, especially if your children have not yet reached the same stage as other children. For example, parents of young children may be tempted to be judgmental towards how other parents train their teenagers. Be careful, be wise, be discerning, but don't be judgmental and don't be self-righteous. Beg God for wisdom because you need it. Application 10, persevere with a long-term view that trusts God's word. I want you to hear this. The Baker Encyclopedia of Psychology and Counseling says this. Discipline may be the most demanding task of parenthood. Discipline may be the most demanding task of parenthood. Intentionally, consistently, and lovingly discipline your children is exhausting. It's exhausting. It's much easier to let children have their own way and wander off into sin. Parents, future parents, you will frequently be tempted to take shortcuts and not teach, reiterate, or especially enforce guidelines. Don't give up. Don't give up. Trust in God. Take him at his word, as we've seen in the book of Hebrews, the book of Proverbs, and fulfill your high calling before God as a father as a mother to the children he has graciously given to you. If you have a short-term view, then you may choose to operate in a way that is more convenient and pleasant for you. But if you have a long-term view and trust God, then you will forgo your personal convenience and pleasure by training your children for their good and for God's glory. Now, in theory, I really could end the sermon right there, but again, this is kitchen sink time, okay? This, very quickly, I want to just add a few more things. These last four bad substitutes for discipline. You said there is nothing easy about the responsibility of training our children in obedience through discipline. It's hard. And because discipline is unpopular and unpleasant, parents often, often find themselves looking for substitutes. Parents can implement four bad substitutes for discipline, substitutes that fail to address their child's heart. 
I've listed four in your bulletin, taken from Ann Benton's book, Parenting Against the Tide. Number one, instead of biblical discipline, parents sometimes make excuses for the child's behavior. This is super common. This is the voice of therapy culture. We say things like, he's tired. She's had a hard day. He's disappointed. She's traumatized. She's got low self-esteem. Now, all of those things may be true, but that's not the point. The point is this. Are we going to allow our children to take responsibility for their own behavior or not? Or is it always going to be the fault of someone else or the circumstances? I'm not saying don't be understanding or sympathetic, but children make choices which are moral choices all day long. And if we're going to praise our children when they do well, surely it's logical to chastise them when they do badly and not make excuses for them. This is, that is very poor training because it teaches the child to blame shift. Another discipline substitute. We organize them. Some parents work really hard to avoid the occasion for misbehavior by organizing their children's life and surroundings. The parents become strategic managers. So you tie up the cupboards. You take the plug off the computer. You run a tight schedule. You make prevention of confrontation your responsibility. And if your child misbehaves, it's your fault for not organizing the circumstances so that it was impossible for them to misbehave. But a child must have some independence in order to learn to take responsibility and to obey parental commands. They need to be let off the leash so that they'll understand the need for self-discipline and obedience. Another discipline substitute, we consult them. This is where you always ask the child what he or she would like. And there's a place for that, of course, like in a restaurant perhaps. But in many parents' vocabularies, the language of choice has replaced the language of command. Parents say things like, Billy, would you like to wash your hands and come to the table? Does the parent really mean that washing hands is optional and that Billy can legitimately say no? I I know it's just an habitual turn of phrase, but also it carries a message. And it can turn into parental wheedling and and, and coaxing a child when, in fact, perhaps mom could have just kindly but firmly instructed, Billy, please wash your hands before dinner. It sometimes seems to me that parents are afraid to tell their children what to do, especially in public, because the child will probably just not do it. Many parents haven't taught their child what no means in any meaningful way, but the child does know what no means because they say it back to the parents all the time when mom or dad tells them to do something. No. I want to suggest that it's fine as parents to just say what you want to happen and then insist that it does. Parenting is not a consultation exercise. You are the adult in the relationship. And you're there to take the long view and decide what's best. You don't have to shout. You don't have to rant. You can just say, this is what's happening now. Be in charge. Another discipline substitute, bribe them. Do this thing I'm telling you 
and you'll get this reward, a sweet, a sticker, a toy. It seems like such a great idea, and in the short term, this can be very, very effective. Uh, and I know it comes highly recommended in some circles, but it's a poor choice. First, because it doesn't change anything inside. It only changes outward behavior, and only just long enough to get that reward. But worse than that, bribery takes behavior out of the moral framework and makes obedience to the parent optional. <laughs> that, that can't be right. What if the child turns down the bribe of sweets or a sticker, mom, and decides ah, disobedience is just more fun? What then? Do you enter into negotiations and like up the ante? You're teaching your child that the only reason to comply is if there is something material in it for them. Now, Jill and I do this all the time with our little dog, Birdie. Do this, boy. Be, just be obedient. You're going to get a treat. And, and I've even, we've even reached the deplorable stage now where when we say no treat to Birdie, he, he knows now to lick our face in a cute way so that we give him the treat, right? And we, we actually encourage it. We actually think it's adorable. No treat means lick my face and get a treat. Yeah. But who cares? Right? We, we, we can spoil that little guy rotten, and it doesn't really matter. There are no real consequences because he's a dog. Right? He doesn't have an eternal soul. But remember what the Bible says. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Ephesians 6.1 As Christian parents, we want our children ultimately to choose good behavior for its own sake. But if we habitually bribe them, we're effectively denying the child the opportunity for finding out that good behavior is his own reward. In conclusion, Christian parents, hear me. Here's the sermon's major takeaway. You've, you've heard me say this before. Our job as Christian parents is to do, is to do everything within our power as an instrument in the hands of the Redeemer who has employed us to woo, encourage, call, and train our children to willingly and joyfully live as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mom and Dad, this is your great commission. The costly, prayerful, spiritual nurture of your children in allowing you to create life and raise another human being, God has gifted you with an awe-inspiring privilege and responsibility. Your, your beautiful baby is an image-bearer of God. He or she is made to glorify God and enjoy eternity with Jesus Christ. That's what you have created, not just a baby but a person who will live forever in heaven or forever in hell. So keep that eternal perspective. Contemplating eternity should torpedo shallow philosophies of parenting, philosophies that don't include discipline. Amen.